And that is not true in all religions. Um, it's actually a kind of a shocking familiarity that we would refer to God as Father, that we would be taught, not just by Jesus, but especially by Jesus, to come into the presence of God as Father. In fact, the concept of Father is part of the definition of the nature of God. He is eternally the Father to the Son. It's a central Christian conception of the nature of God. He is eternally at his core a father. He has always been a father. It is it is one of the central facts about his meaning. And the creeds of the church reflect this. We talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It, it's written into the Nicene Creed, which is one of the, the early creeds of the church from the 300s. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So God in his eternal trinity consists of Father and Son. And the Son is of one substance with the Father. God is eternally and essentially Father to the Son, to the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. And the nature of God, the Father, is the pattern copied by all earthly human families. Part of being created in the image of God, as humanity is, as the family is, you know, the family is created in the image of God as well. Paul in Ephesians talks about marriage as an image of Christ's love for the church. And the relation between father and son is an image, a metaphor, a picture to us into the essential nature of God. Jesus says we are all children of the Father. And as believers redeemed in him, we can approach God directly as Abba, Father. I was just the Aramaic word for dad or daddy. And it's not just in the Lord's Prayer. It's not a, a unique, singular um, teaching by Jesus that he only gives there. As he's teaching his disciples, he often uses the phrase, the phrase in his teaching, your Father who is in heaven sees, cares, is interested in, provides for you. Your Father who is in heaven, he instructs his disciples God in heaven, the most holy, the creator, your father. Not some distant, remote, um, unfamiliar deity who is far above and beyond and unapproachable, but he is your father in heaven. And again, I think the words are so familiar to us because we know the words of Jesus. We've read them over and over again. Sometimes we miss the import of that. Jesus is not unique in that teaching, by the way. This is not a new teaching that Jesus brings to his disciples. He is reaffirming a, a long tradition in the Old Testament that described God in the same way. I was actually kind of a little disappointed this week in looking over this concept and Googling through things to discover that one of the teachers I really admire and have a great deal of respect for, R.C. Sproul, 
has a little essay at one point where he talks about Jesus being the first one to announce that God is Father and to refer to God as Father, and I'm going, I, I think R.C. actually got that a little wrong. Because um, if you look here, <laughs> here, here's a couple of Old Testament verses. Um, Jesus is not the first to announce that God is our Father. The Scriptures proclaim it in both the Old and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 32.6, do you thus requite the Lord of foolish people? And this is Moses giving his final teaching to the nation of Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land, and he's not going with them. So this is his last opportunity to instruct them. We're 24 weeks into a 32-week study of Deuteronomy in the Saturday morning men's Bible study that I only moderate. (laughs) I've given up trying to teach those people. Um, I, I moderate and I ramble and I go on rabbit trails and, and I say whatever pops into my head. Um, and actually I learn. If you haven't come, if, if you are, have a Saturday morning free, please come join us. And by the way, the men's retreat in Kentucky, that Saturday morning, um, we will be having the men's Bible study in Kentucky. And it's only an hour away. So if you, if you can't come on Friday or say Friday night, set your alarm for one hour earlier and drive up and join us Saturday morning in Kentucky for the Bible study. Anyway, um, so this is in Deuteronomy. We'll get there. Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? This is Moses telling the people of Israel, do you remember what happened 30 years ago before we wandered around? God bought you. He is your father. Isn't he your father? Don't you understand that? Don't you remember what he did? First Chronicles. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Next slide. I got a bunch of these. R.C.'s rule was really wrong. But now, O Lord, thou, this is Isaiah 64. Eight, but now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Jeremiah 3.19. Oh, sorry. I got them in a different order here. Oh, sorry. No, I'm just reading one. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledges not. Thou, O Lord, art our father. Our Redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. Next slide. Now I get to Jeremiah. Two verses from Jeremiah, the beginning and the end of the book. But I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the host of nations? And I said, thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from me. And at the very end of that book, They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, identifying himself as, I am father to the nation of Israel. I'm not just their Lord. I'm not just their lawgiver. I'm not just the creator of the cosmos to whom they owe worship and respect. I am their father. Next slide. 
Malachi. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? It's God kind of not so gently rebuking Israel, saying, I'm your father, and why don't you honor me? There is a commandment that has something to say about that. If I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name? And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? Malachi is rebuking them for losing sight of their relationship to God and not honoring him. And again, next chapter, have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi is worth reading sometime. Next slide. Proverbs and Psalms. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Our relationship to God is as father and son. Psalm 103, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And and just to beat the horse a little more, it's not dead, it's still quivering. Um, next slide. There are a bunch of verses that talk about us as sons and children of God in Exodus. And this one struck me. In fact, I was, I was a little surprised and chagrined. I read this verse from Exodus a couple of days ago, and I'm going... I don't remember this verse. I don't think I've ever seen this verse or understood it. And I teach Exodus to ninth graders every year. Exodus 4, 22, 23. This is God basically throwing down the gauntlet to Pharaoh, saying that, well, telling Moses what he wants Moses to tell Pharaoh. Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. Even my firstborn, and I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. How have I never seen that before? You know, the slaying of the firstborn as the tenth plague is is uh, the, the terrible, awesome, tragic point of deliverance of the nation of Israel is the thing that finally convinces Pharaoh to let the Hebrew slaves go. I'm going, you know, it just seems um, awfully harsh. It seems brutal. It seems uh, it's a terrible, terrible calamity that falls upon Egypt with the slaying of the firstborn. And I'd never seen this verse as an explanation that connects that. God is saying, Israel is my firstborn. Let them go. If you don't let them go, I will slay your firstborn. This is the love of God for his children, for his sons, for his firstborn. Deuteronomy 14. It's kind of a weird prohibition in Deuteronomy against um, uh, certain ritual funeral practices of the pagan um, peoples and tribes in Canaanite. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. I don't know what that is. Apparently it was something that the Canaanites did when they were mourning. And God says, don't do that. You're my children. Don't do that. Next slide. Psalms and Isaiah again. I have said, 
you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Isaiah, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So the depth of God's um, feeling about the behavior of Israel is not just because they're disobeying him, but they are his children whom he created and raised, whom he bought and redeemed out of slavery, and they have rebelled against him. Those of you who are fathers or parents and have children and know when your children are going through a period of rebellion, which many of them do, um, it's painful. Uh, there's a sense of betrayal when your children are in rebellion. Okay, I think I got one more. Yes, Hosea. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. That was the promise to Abraham. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Not only are you my people, you are the sons of the living God. And then Hosea picks up and and copies and calls back that um, verse from Exodus chapter 4. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Fatherhood is central to who God is. He is not just creator and Lord. It is more intimate than that. It is more connected to that. He is father to his people. And I think we can understand all that. We, it, it, it strikes a rich chord in all of us because all of us have fathers. Everybody has a mother and a father. And so we all have some experience in our own um, lives of what a father is. We have our own fathers from our childhood, most of us. We have family experience. We can observe other families and see how fathers behave toward their children. We get a picture from that, from life, of what is a father. What kinds of things does a father do? How does a father feel? How does a father behave? And then, like it or not, and most times these days I don't like it, um, our culture in entertainment in any other way is fascinated with fathers. Think about the depictions of families and fathers in the entertainment realm, in books, on TV, in movies, even in the lyrics of our music. Fathers come up quite a lot. They're a central idea. So emotionally, what the word father means to each one of us, rooted in our own childhood experience of our own father, is something pretty deep, pretty profound. And as I am a father, that's a pretty sobering thought. It's actually kind of a scary thought, is that a child's conception of what is a father comes from their experience. I've been a father now for almost 40 years. It'll be 40 years next June. My oldest will turn 40. Each time that I have held a newborn child of my own, 
For an adopted child of my own who has been placed in my care, I am overwhelmed with emotion. I feel a sense of awe and wonder and joy and bewilderment and complete inadequacy. Each of those experiences has been overwhelming and very emotional. Cindy says, um, I have a look about me. That's very distinctive when I'm holding a newborn. And I experience it again now with grandchildren, although it's not the same. Um, There was something about being a father. So here I am, 40 years into fatherhood. My youngest children, my youngest two, each turned 21 this year. So they're adults. All of my children are now adults. And I have to confess, I don't know if I've done it well. I don't know if I've succeeded. There are times when I'm um, intensely proud of them and awed by them. But, of course, I'm, I'm not done being a father just because they're all adults. Uh, my role has changed, not ended, as my children have become adults. Your relationship um, is different. I can no longer issue commands and directives. Actually, that stopped before they were 21. But um, I can sort of only offer advice. And as they've turned 21, I try to stop doing that unless I'm asked directly, what do you think? Um, That's a useful discipline for fathers to learn, how to to navigate that transition. Stop telling them what to do. They're they're adults. You know, when they want to hear from you, they'll ask you. And for those of you who are younger than me, and that would be most of you, um, if your father's still alive, um, do me a favor. Ask his advice from time to time. Um, you don't have to take it, but, but he'll be terrifically honored if you simply ask and listen. It, it may not change your mind about anything, and, and you're certainly not going to change his. But... Fathers are honored if you ask them what they think, if you ask them for advice. They're honored if you listen to what they have to say. That's maybe a clue about our relationship with God. You know, God really wants us to ask his advice. We typically want to give God advice. Um, You know, I know God is sovereign, but I have a couple of suggestions about ways I think things could be going a little better. You know, if you were to tweak this and anyway. Um. Offering advice to God will typically just make him laugh. Ask. Ask advice. You know, he might surprise you. Your father might have advice that he would like to give you and has wanted to give you for a while, but he's been respectful. Um, He wants to be respectful of your independence and is waiting for you to ask. And if you ask and listen, you might hear some wisdom. Where was I? Fatherhood, yes, in the Bible. Um, Enough anecdotes. Fatherhood in our culture is the other thing I wanted to talk about this morning. I've kind of um, walked through the Old Testament and New Testament concept and how central it is to who God is. Um, It is something of um, an oft-repeated observation now, no longer original to anyone, that the family is not faring well at the moment. Husbands and wives, parents and children, we've got a bit of a crisis going on. Many families are broken. Many relationships are strained. And some of this, of course, is due to the fact that we are all 
fallen and have sinful natures. But I have to say at the moment, the culture is not helping. The culture is not helping at all. We are perilously close to a widespread common opinion that all masculinity is toxic and that all men are dangerous and that fathers are unnecessary. And that's tragic um, and destructive and is a whirlwind that we're beginning to reap, have been reaping for a generation or two. There are foolish and tragic consequences to those false opinions. Sin is a problem. There's an original thought. Um, All men, all human fathers are fallen and flawed, sinful human beings. And as fathers, we need to be striving to do better. But it seems at times that the culture or the zeitgeist right now just wants to dispense with us. We have been identified as the problem. And I don't think that's true. I think, in fact, it's not that fathers are the problem. It's that the lack of fathers is the problem. It is a sociological truism that almost all our societal problems are caused by men. That actually is true. It's not all men. Most criminals are men. Most murderers, most killers, almost all of the mass murderers, mass killings, are done by men. But it's not all men. The one thing they all have in common, a couple of things they have in common. One is it's young men. Very few 65-year-olds are going out and committing mass murder. It's young men. And the most untalked about common characteristic of all them, everybody's trying to figure out why is this happening? Why are we seeing these horrible events? Um, Overwhelmingly, 90-plus percent, maybe 95 percent of the mass killings in this country are young men who have grown up without the influence of a father. That's the common denominator. It's not any particular ideology. Some of them have ideology that is on the far left. Some of them have ideology that's on the far right. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are jihadists. But they all, almost without exception, have in common the fact they are young men without a father in their lives, without the influence of a father. So Christian fathers in particular, I have a big ask. I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider not just how you can be a better father to your own children. I've talked to almost all the fathers in our fellowship here, and I know it is your intense desire to be a good father to your children. But I'm asking you to consider how you could be a father figure to the fatherless. That is a huge crying need around us. There are practical and biblical reasons to consider this. Probably the the most um, motivating injunction ought to be the Bible's definition of true religion from James Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the fatherless and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. True religion is to care for the fatherless. So it's a bigger ask than just being a good father. It's if you want to be a true follower 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be a true son of your Father in heaven, if you want to practice true religion, consider how you can care for the fatherless. And the Greek really does mean um, go and look for, go and ponder, go and consider, go and visit with an eye toward what can I do to serve and care for these people. Final footnote about all of this. I was led to speculate about all of this because of the confusion and noise in the culture about what's causing these evil, wicked, senseless acts of violence and mass murder that have been dominating the airways. We see them too often. And that common denominator is fatherless. Almost all of them are lacking a father in their lives. Almost all of them lack hope in any future for themselves. If you commit that evil, wicked public act, you are surrendering your future. And it's not that they don't know that. They do know that. They do know that this is the end. This is the last thing I will do. I'm doing it because I have no future. So it's a lack of hope a lack of any sense or confidence that there's a future for them. They have found no purpose or sense of meaning for themselves, and so they become susceptible to the lies of the father of lies that they could kill in one cause or another and give their lives some purpose, even as they abandon all hope. The lack of hope, a lack of any sense of purpose and meaninglessness, and so they're desperately trying to find something that would give their life purpose. And when you're desperate and lack hope, you are susceptible to being deceived by the father of lies. It's not to say that being fatherless causes young men to become criminals. It does not. There are many stories of those who have overcome the absence of a father and found hope and a purpose in their lives and lived lives of deep meaning and honor. It's not inevitable. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't have to happen. And I know there are... um, Families where the father is absent for one reason or another, where uh, a single mom has done an absolutely admirable job in raising up an admirable young man. That can happen. But almost all of the mass murderers in our recent history have been fatherless young men, no hope, struggling to find purpose. I'm actually the beneficiary of Christian men who practiced true religion. My father died tragically when I was five years old. My three sisters and I were fatherless. And the men of my church in Atlanta practiced true religion. I remember more than a few of them who took it upon themselves to care for our family, for myself and for our sisters in our affliction, following the the verse in the book of James. When I was a young man between the ages of 5 and 15, there was never a father and son event that one of these men didn't show up and ask if they could take me as their guest. I am forever grateful. And I hope I have been and will continue to be able to pay it forward with the practice of true religion, which is to care for widows and the fatherless in their affliction. Let me pray and give us a benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. 
Father, thank you that we can call you Abba, Father, that we enter into your presence in the spirit of adoption as your children, as the children that you love, as the children whom you sent your son to die for, to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery, to make us your children, to clothe us in his righteousness, to bring us into fellowship with you for all eternity, to be your guests at the banquet feast. And Father, open our eyes, show us the needs around us of the widows and the fatherless who need our care and attention and visiting in their affliction. Thank you for the way you have blessed us so richly. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this congregation. Guide us and keep us all safe this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.
separate 